join me by taking your Bibles and turning to read all 50. I'll refer to them. But I want to give you a little background as to what we're looking at. Unable to resist the spirit and the power in which Stevens preached the gospel. His opponents resort to a mock trial with false witnesses who in essence accused Stephen of saying that faith in Jesus implied the abandonment of the temple and the Mosaic rituals. This charge would have been considered blasphemy against God. This response of the Sanhedrin and the false witnesses reminds me of those instances where maybe somebody at work or somebody on a sports team that's more qualified, more skilled, more adept comes along. And the person that they're kind of overshadowing can become jealous, can become reactive even in an abusive way. Fear and reaction at the perceived threat of Christianity to these power-hungry Jewish leaders fill them with a malicious intent. Stephen's defense is not primarily concerning himself, but for the worship of Jesus Christ by the believers. The question is, was Jesus a threat to Judaism? And the answer is no and yes. Yes, Jesus was a threat to the false Judaism that was being practiced by these Jewish leaders and most of their followers. But no, it was not a threat to the true scriptural Judaism which Jesus himself as Messiah was fulfilling. This message is the longest recorded message in Acts. Luke, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is led of the Spirit to record this message in detail because this is a pivotal and transitional time for the church. To this point, Christianity was extremely Jewish. There was one church at Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, it was people in Jerusalem from all over the world that were Jews that came on the day of Pentecost to celebrate Pentecost, and they heard the word preached, and many were saved. And as the church would meet, they would meet at Solomon's porch, and, and the gospel was preached, and signs and wonders were done by the apostles, and people were being saved, but it was all right in that area. And we're about to see in the book of Acts a great transition as persecution hits the church and the gospel begins to spread throughout the known world. People all over the world are going to hear the gospel and become Christians. They will worship and serve Jesus Christ all over the globe, not just at Jerusalem. And I want you to understand in this message this morning that Stephen is not merely recounting history or trying to prove the Sanhedrin that he was truly Jewish. He is making some spiritual points. And so there are four main points throughout this passage that I believe really sum up the essence of this whole entire 50-something first message that Stephen is preaching. And we'll see the exhortation at the end. Look with me. In verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest said, Are these things so? The accusations have been met, met, and the high priest is not really saying, Verify or deny this. He's just kind of saying, What's your response? They'd already made up their minds. This was a mock trial. They knew what they wanted to do. And they had already tried and found him guilty and already had the sentence in their minds. 
But look in verse 2. And he, Stephen, said, men, brethren, and fathers. This was a very respectful and formal way to address the Sanhedrin. He is in no way showing disrespect to the Sanhedrin. In fact, he's going out of his way to show the utmost respect to those who are in authority. He hearkened. Listen carefully. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon. And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred and come into the land which I will show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charon. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed into this land wherein ye now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. Here's the first point that Stephen is making. Christians worship and are following the one true God, the God of glory. This is the God of Abraham. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus tell to the disciples when Philip said, show us the Father and it sufficeth us? Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long with you? He that has seen me has what? Seen the Father. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And the Jews took up stones to slay him. And he said, for which of my good works do you stone me? And he said, not for any good works, they said to Jesus, but that you being a man, make yourself to be equal with God. You are claiming to be God. They knew exactly what he meant. As a matter of fact, it's very interesting that they're bringing up this whole idea of the temple, that Stephen is preaching against the temple. Did they not also accuse Christ of that when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again? Yet isn't it also very interesting that after Jesus Christ is crucified, those same Pharisees verify it. They see that he's dead. They see the Roman soldier take a spear and pierce his side and forthwith comes out blood and water. They saw Jesus' body die. Yet... They go to the Roman governor and say, give us an armed guard in front of the tomb. Because he said he'd rise again from the dead. And they quoted that very statement, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. They knew exactly what he meant. And here they know exactly what Stephen is preaching, but they're going to twist his words to fit their own paradigm and their own purpose. But Stephen is making it very clear, not only before the Sanhedrin, but before this entire crowd that had gathered and all these false witnesses. And remember that the, the, this group, the synod, the synagogue of all of these different people, Jews that had come from all over the world and resettled in Jerusalem to worship the one true God. They then are, are raising up this accusation that they are incensed and they come to this trial to hear what, Paul, what, what, excuse me, what Stephen is going to be saying in his defense and the first thing he wants to understand is, look, we are not worshiping another God. We are worshiping the one true God as foretold in scriptures. That is Jesus Christ, Messiah. This is the God of Abraham. You remember there's another statement that Jesus makes in, in the book of John. When the Pharisees talk to Jesus and Jesus refers to Abraham and they say, you're not even yet 50 years old. Right? And Abraham says, hey, Abraham rejoiced to see me in my day. And they said, what? How is that possible? And Jesus said, I'd say unto you before Abraham was, what? I am. He's claiming to be Yahweh. He's God. 
And Stephen is reiterating that point. Folks, we serve the one true God, Jesus Christ. In him, the Bible tells us, dwelt all the fullness of the, of, of the Godhead, that is the Trinity, bodily. Christ is God. We worship the same God. He's making a point here. Abraham believed and obeyed God when there was no written scripture. Abraham had a personal friendship with God through faith. The Bible says of Abraham that he believed God and it was counted unto him for what? Righteousness. He was right with God, made right with God because of faith in God. Abraham was before any of the law was given. Before any of it was written down. And he's reminding, hey, listen, before there was even a written law, Abraham believed God. He was counted him for righteousness. He obeyed God by faith. Even before he had the instruction of written scripture. Christians are following the one true God, the God of glory. And his name is Jesus Christ. Second of all, Christians trust in the one true God who is with his people wherever they go. He's talking, we've already read the text where he talks about that God called Abraham to come out of Ur the Chaldees and go into Haran. Here, Charon, uh, the, the, the Greek kind of version of the same name, the same place. And he's saying, you know what? God called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees to come to this, to this region, but he did not even give Abraham ownership. He promised it to him, but he didn't give it to him. And so what's the point he's making? Hey, God appeared to Abraham outside the promised land. What did the Jews in Christ's day, what was their big hang-up? Hey, if God is going to be worshipped and God has got to be served, it's got to be only at the temple and it's only, only got to be according to the law and the tradition of the elders that we have. And Stephen is saying that's not what the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, your scriptures don't say that. Because when God called Abraham, he called him when Abraham was not yet in the promised land. And he promised him something when he was not yet in the promised land. There was no temple. There was no tabernacle. Yet God met with Abraham and God went with Abraham. And wherever God's people go who are following him, God is with them. And it doesn't have to be in Jerusalem and it doesn't have to be at the temple. Then, look at verses 9 and 10 with me. He uses Joseph as this illustration. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But look at this. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt with all of his house. Look, and God was with Joseph in Egypt and he prospers Joseph in Egypt. As a matter of fact, it was God's plan for Joseph to go to Egypt because it saved his whole house. And, and God had promised to Abraham, I'm going to raise up a great nation. I'm going to raise up the Messiah through this nation. This nation, the, all of the family, his father, and there were 75 people in all of, of Joseph's family and relatives that were still up in near the promised land area. There was a great famine in the land. But God strategically put Joseph in Egypt and prospered him and rescued and spared his people through Joseph. God prospered him. God led him. God was with him even in Egypt, which again is outside Jerusalem. It's outside of the temple. And then God prospered Israel while they were in Egypt. Look at verse 17. The Bible says in verse 17, but when the time of the promise drew nigh, God 
which, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. So even while they're in Egypt, and even when they are sold into slavery, God was prospering them. Again, they were not in the promised land. They did not have the temple, but God prospered them outside of that context. And we see how God is preparing even through this because believers, disciples would have been hearing this defense as well. Remember, this is not Stephen's personal defense to try to spare his life. This is Stephen's defense of Christianity. It is Stephen's defense of following and worshiping Jesus Christ, the one true God. And he is saying, look, Abraham, our father, worship God. We worship him. And God was with his people wherever he go. Joseph. God was with him in Egypt. God led him there and God prospered him even outside Jerusalem and outside of the promised land. And God used him for a specific purpose. And even when the nation of Israel was sold into slavery, God prospered them outside the promised land, outside the temple. You get the theme? Because what did they accuse, jo- what did they accuse Stephen of? Speaking against the law of Moses and speaking against the temple. And Stephen is saying, look, even before there was a temple, that God worked outside of the context of that. They were so hung up on the temple and on Jerusalem. And then God prepares Moses. And this is a key issue because they said he's speaking against Moses. They want to do away with, Stephen is preaching that we need to do away with all of these rituals. All the mosaic rituals. And so to speak against the rituals of Moses or the laws delivered to Moses and really what they didn't say, the unspoken thing was that they had equated, and Jesus accused the Pharisees of this, they had equated the traditions of the elders and the commentaries of the rabbis concerning the scriptures to have equal authority and validity as the scriptures. And that is wrong. That is heresy. Only God's word is the perfect, eternal word of God. Moses was nurtured and, and educated by pagan Egyptians. Look at me, if you would, verses 20 to 22 real quick. And which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair, nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out or carried out, you remember because of the command of the Pharaoh, what did Moses' mom do? She wove the basket of bulrushes and she put the pitch inside and out, made this basket, put it in the bulrushes and Miriam, his older sister, was there watching over that. And of course, the, the, the Pharaoh's uh, daughter, the princess of Egypt, comes to do a ceremonial washing in the Nile River. And of course, she's sending her maidens up and down the riverbanks to make sure there were no crocodiles in it. And uh, they don't find any crocodiles, but they do find a basket. And they bring the basket, and there is baby Moses. And he goes, oh, this is an Israelite baby. And, and Moses got his name, by the way, not from his parents, but from Pharaoh's daughter. Because Moses is an Egyptian name. That means I drew him out of the water. And then, of course, the Bible says that he was raised in her house. Look at this. The Bible, and this is what Stephen is saying, and they knew this was true. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nursed him in her, as her own, for her own son. And Moses was learned or educated, trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. So Stephen is saying, listen, away from the promised land, when there was no temple, when there was not even yet a tabernacle. Moses, whom you, and really I believe we could say this, they actually worshipped Moses, which they should not have done. This Moses, whom you revere so highly, 
He was brought up in Egypt. He was trained and educated in Egypt, in a pagan land and in a pagan culture. And then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert herding sheep. And God trained him there before he used Moses to lead the nation of Israel to freedom. So number one, Christians are are following the one true God, the God of glory. Number two, Christians trust in the one true God who is with his people wherever they go. Number three, Christians worship the one true God and wherever God appears is holy ground. You see, those people, the Jews, thought that the holiest of holies, that, that only the high priest could go into once a year, was the holiest spot on the place of the earth and that the holy place was. And certainly the law had very clear instruction who could go in and when. But what Stephen is saying is before there was a holy place and the holiest of holies, before there was Mount Zion, the holy city, wherever God goes with his people, wherever God is, is holy ground. Look at verses 30 to 33. The Bible says, and when 40 years were expired, there appeared to him, to Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Then said the Lord unto him, put off thy shoes from thy feet for the place where thou standest is holy ground. Moses had spent 40 years in Midian on the backside of the desert, which is outside of the promised land area outside of Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord, I believe it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We call that a theophany. I believe that's what happened at the burning bush. Because the Bible says that an angel of the Lord saw him and God spoke to him out of that fiery bush. And Jesus appears to him, God appears to him and speaks to him, not in the promised land. And the place was holy ground. Hey folks, wherever God appears as holy ground. And it doesn't have to be in the temple. It doesn't have to be in Jerusalem. It doesn't have to be in the promised land. Stephen and the Christians are being accused of being against the one true God, the law of Moses, the temple, and Judaism. We believe in the one true God and the scriptures. Stephen is saying, look, the Old Testament scriptures that you claim is the scriptures and you're right, we claim those too. That's what we are following. That's where we get this from. They demonstrate that God calls people wherever he wants, is with them wherever they go, and wherever he, God, appears is holy ground. And then number four, Christians worship the one true God, and he is not limited to one building or to one place. Now we come down towards the conclusion. Look at verses 48 to 50. Verse 48. In verse 47, we'll back it up. But Solomon built him, speaking of God, a house. How be it, verse 48, the most high dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, and what house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Were the Jews wrong because they'd had a tabernacle and a temple? No. God told Moses to build the tabernacle and gave him detailed instruction. Did God want a a temple to be built? Absolutely. And David wanted to build him a temple and God said, no, but 
I got a better promise for you. Your son is going to build the temple, but there's going to be another one who is actually the fulfillment of the picture of this temple. And that is Jesus Christ. The Messiah is going to come. And he's going to rule and reign on your throne, David. He is going to rule and reign forever. Of your lineage, there will be no end. Because Jesus Christ. So the Jews were not wrong in having a tabernacle or a temple. But no house can contain our creator. Nowhere did God say that he would exclusively dwell only at the temple and nowhere else. In 1 Kings 8, verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built? That was Solomon. Solomon built it and he knew. In Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. By the way, Isaiah 66, 2 is the essence of revival. One who's of a contrite and humble spirit who trembles at God's word. The Old Testament scriptures made it clear that God never intended his people to conclude that he exclusively dwelt in a temple at Jerusalem in the promised land, and that was it. The conclusions that the Jews were coming to were absolutely false based on the scriptures that they claimed to believe. Stephen points out that as their forefathers had rejected Moses, so they had rejected Jesus. Look back in verse 37. This is another essence that comes through this passage. In, in Acts chapter 7, in verse 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye here, Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. I will raise them up a prophet. This is Moses' prophesying. I will raise them up a prophet among, from among their brethren, like unto thee, that will put my words, this is God speaking to Moses, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Jesus was not against the temple but he fulfilled the temple. The temple and the sacrificial system were pictures, illustrations, pointing to Jesus. Think about this. Your spouse is away on a trip, maybe to visit relatives, maybe a business trip, whatever. And while they're gone, you have their picture on your phone. You have maybe a picture in the house by, on the nightstand next to your bed. And while they're gone, maybe every night you get a little sentimental and you pick up that picture and you kiss that picture. Or you look at that phone and you're reminded of your loved one. Maybe some of you have experienced a loved one who's been deployed for several months overseas in the military. And you know you, you don't want to forget exactly what they look like, so you look often at those pictures. But don't you think it'd be a bit odd? If that person who'd been deployed for months or that relative that had been gone helping maybe a sick friend relative for a month finally comes back home 
and you're there to pick them up at the airport and they come walking up to you for a hug and you're staring at the picture of them on the phone and you say, don't bother me, I'm enjoying this picture. And you talk to the picture and you don't talk to them. Say, have you lost your mind? But the Old Testament scripture showed that the temple and the sacrificial system was a picture of what was coming, the reality of Jesus Christ. But these Jews had come to false conclusions and they were staring at the picture and they were ignoring the fulfillment. They were ignoring the reality of the type. Jesus has come. Jesus has fulfilled all that the temple and the sacrificial system represented. And that is why, according to Hebrews, we no longer have to offer, offer sacrifice for sin. Because as John the Baptist said of Jesus as he came to him in the wilderness, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. God, through Christ, has obtained eternal redemption once and for all for us. Let me ask you, my friend, have you obtained that redemption? You cannot wash away your sins by being baptized. You cannot somehow work off the debt by good works and religious activities. For you have committed crimes against God called sin that have earned for you the sentence of God's justice, eternal death. And it is coming and it is certain. And as the Bible tells us later in the text that we read this morning in Hebrews 9, 27, and as it is appointed unto die, but after this, the judgment. Folks, when you die physically, your eternal destiny is sealed. But verse, the next part of that verse goes on, or the last part of that passage in, in Hebrews chapter 9, and says, so also Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Jesus died on that cross and shed his blood and suffered the wrath of his Father upon your sin in your place because he loves you. Because, as the scriptures tell us in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus himself said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, he's talking about the cross, would draw all men unto me. Jesus loves you. He died on the cross. He suffered unspeakable agony and paid the ultimate price that only he, as God in the flesh, could pay. He, the act, the sacrifice has been given and is finished. And Jesus died, was buried, and being God, he conquered death and rose again. And as the resurrected Savior, he'll give you eternal life. You can obtain eternal redemption today. But what are the applications for those of us who are saved? This may sound a little odd, but first of all, don't confuse the church with the building. I know, we say, hey, I'm going to church. And where are we coming? Here, right? But folks, this building is only a tool. This building is not the church. We who are saved are the church. We are, this morning, a local assembly of believers 
And we who are saved are part of the church, the body of Christ, which includes all who have repented of their sin and trust in themselves and put their faith only in Jesus, the one who died and rose again for them. And as the living Savior have called out through prayer, expressing that they're a sinner and that they believe Jesus died and rose again for them. And they call out and receive by faith eternal life. All of us are part of that church. But don't confuse the church with the building. I praise the Lord for people who helped make sure that these buildings were built correctly and have invested much money and work in them. But you know what? As we do this renovation, if things don't look like you dreamed they would, don't get bent out of shape because this is only a tool. We want to be good stewards to serve the Lord. We want to be effective stewards with what God's entrusted to us. But this building is not the church. Don't confuse the building with the church. Number two, don't confuse a church that is Berean with the church. We need to be very careful about being provincial. We get protective of our territory. When I, when I was helping plant a church, I was helping a guy um, who was, uh, he was a church planner. Uh, I wanted to be his assistant. I was not yet married, so I had lots of time to work. Uh, this guy and I started a carpet and upholstery cleaning business. That's how we financially supported ourselves in the church. A sister church in the Chicago area uh, loaned us some families for a few months and gave us some songbooks and some chairs and all of that. And we got started. And I can remember going to, uh, to because of the time that I had, to connect with other churches that were kind of out in that region. No, no fundamental independent Bible preaching church within a 30 minute drive of where we were planning this church in the Fox River Valley area. But I can remember going to trying to sit down with a pastor who really did not want to give me the time of day. You know why? Because he felt that I was horning in on his territory. Like our planning a church was spiritual squatting on his ranch. <laughs> it was 30 minutes away. Instead of saying, praise God, the church is going to grow in this area because there's another church being planted, a local body, another lighthouse of the gospel where folks will be saved and believers will be strengthened and equipped and trained to reach more of our community. Praise God. Hey, you know what? We've got some other independent Baptist churches within our area. Close. We're not going to be provincial. We're not going to be competitive we are going to do what we can to help them fulfill the Great Commission. And we are not going to, quote, be protective of our territory. Why? Hey, listen, we love to disciple and equip believers. We love to share the gospel with those who come to Christ. Those that we reach in our community. And we ought to have a burden to reach them and then to disciple them. That's the Great Commission. But you know what? What if... We lead somebody to faith in Christ. And we begin to disciple them. And they end up at another church where they're serving God in a Bible preaching church. Praise God. We need to be careful that we don't become territorial like the Sanhedrin. That we become like the Jewish people who revered the temple as much as they revered God that they revered their forefathers and spiritual leaders of the past to the point where they began to believe 
those people and their example and worship that and get their focus off of the one true God. Don't get confused about the Great Commission. We are commanded to reach our immediately locale, but we are also commanded to invest the gospel in other locations and nations. And that's what's going to happen as we get into the book of Acts now. We are going to see that the church did not just grow at Jerusalem, but that it expanded and churches were planted and believers were strengthened and people around the known world were airing the gospel and they were growing and then they were reaching others with the gospel and then training them and discipling them. And the kingdom of God was expanding all over the known world. Doesn't mean that the church of Jerusalem just died away. But it means that it expanded as God intended for it. For the Bible says of our God who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Don't get confused about the gospel. The gospel is clear. The gospel is simple. We need to not think that because we don't have a Ph.D. in theology that we can't witness to somebody. But don't think that you have to have gone through a catechism class to be able to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Christ said, unless you come with the faith of a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't get confused about the gospel. It is so simple and clear. Satan wants to confuse your mind. He does not want the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to shine in your understanding where you would receive the forgiveness of your sin and eternal life, which can only happen through trust in Jesus Christ. Don't get confused about the gospel. If you have questions, if you are confused, don't leave here confused. We have trained Bible counselors who will take the word of God and get with you in a quiet place and open up the word of God and explain these things to you and answer your questions. Come get that help. And if you say, Pastor Todd, I need some help. I want to be able to share the gospel. I'm a little confused how to do that. Come and see me. We'll equip you. That We have a delight to do that. If you want to let us help you. And then last, remember that we who follow Jesus, we worship him, the one true God. Remember that God is not limited to location. Wherever you go, he is with you. And wherever he is, is holy ground. Our Father, this morning, we are in awe at your divine plan. The plan of redemption, that plan where we were redeemed through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that scarlet thread that weaves itself throughout the Old Testament and all through the New Testament. You, Lord Jesus Christ, are the Word made flesh. You are the theme of the Scriptures. We don't meet here today to build some sort of religious empire or business or corporation. We come today to build the kingdom of God through proclaiming the gospel, through living holy lives that exemplify Christ, through encouraging, strengthening, training, and equipping followers of Jesus So, Lord, help us to never confuse the building with the church. Help us to never confuse Berean Baptist Church as being the church. May we not become exclusive or provincial, territorial. Help us, Lord, not to be confused about the gospel, but to share those of us who have experienced your grace through faith. We know that you've saved us. 
You shine the light of truth in our heart. You've taken the word of God and made it clear for us to understand that we may by faith respond to the offer of salvation and turn to Christ. Help us then to be able to clearly present the gospel to others. And for anybody here this morning or watching by way of live stream that had not put their faith in Christ, that Satan is still confusing and blinding. For we know according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Satan actively always does that. Father, we pray that those precious souls would have the desire to come to the knowledge of the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we always remember that wherever we go, you are with us. Wherever you call us, you will go with us. And that you will prosper us as we go spiritually. That you will use us. And that as you go with us, wherever you are is holy ground. Thank you that you are not limited to a locale. You're not limited to a building. You're not limited to a movement or even to a denomination. You are the eternal, limitless, infinite, perfect God. And we worship you this morning in Jesus' name. Our heads are bowed. In a moment, we'll have an invitation. The invitation will not be a come forward invitation this morning. But here is the invitation for you. Do you worship the one true God, the God of glory? Because you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If not, would you turn to him today? After the service, I would invite you to come back to the connection point. I'll be back there with my Bible. My wife will be back there. If you're a lady and would like a lady to talk with you, we'll sit down in the privacy of the connection point, open up the word of God, and in a few brief minutes, we can show you the way of salvation and answer your questions. Because the most important decision you will make in this life is to trust Jesus Christ for eternal life. Maybe for some of you who are saved, God is calling you to go. Maybe it's a new job situation and God wants you to be a witness for him in your new job. Maybe it's a new neighborhood. Maybe it's a new situation. And I want you to be encouraged this morning and I want you to worship the Lord and say, Lord, I know that wherever I go, wherever you call me, you are with me. Thank you that you're not limited to one place. And Lord, help me. And we don't always follow you, not man, not tradition, but to follow you and obey your word so I can truly worship you in spirit and in truth. As our pianist begins to play, right now, just where you're seated, would you respond to the Lord?